0: Welcome to What in the World. My name is Andre, being joined by Ryan. Ryan, how are you doing today?
1: Uh, Andre, I am in Florida, so I'm doing much better uh, than I was. How warm is it in Florida right now? It is 80 degrees and sunny. I'm already burning. Uh, i hoping it will turn into a tan, but I'm not very confident that it will. It is in like the, it's in like the
0: uh, lower 60s, high 50s here in San Diego, so it's definitely warmer where you are. De- I mean, hey, I'm... I'm very happy where I am right now. <laughs> that must be pretty nice. I, I sort of miss the warmth now. It's sort of cold, and my apartment—we don't use the heater because it makes some weird smell Since you hardly use a heater in San Diego, so I'm just sort of bundled up in my apartment, which traps cold for well, some reason. I'm so. wishing you
1: a, a warmer uh, week next week. But Speaking uh, of cold places, Ryan, Russia. That what a wonderful transition into uh, <laughs> Russia. Uh, there's certainly a lot going on, really, just in the past few months, there's always something occurring there. Putin's always causing trouble. Um, so we talked about Russia's escalation, really the the buildup of troops on Ukraine's borders. And now Russia is demanding that the United States and NATO halt military activity basically within what they see as their sphere of influence. So Eastern Europe, Central Asia, essentially the former Soviet Union, it's kind of creating like this Cold War-esque security arrangement where you have kind of these two spheres of influences that NATO doesn't you know, go into and that Russia doesn't go into. And Russia's basically said that we want these security guarantees that NATO will not expand further, it won't go into former Soviet republics. Uh, and this is, I mean, these are quite just outrageous demands for Russia. Um, I'm not surprised, and I don't think Russia actually believes that this will be met. uh, But you can clearly see that what they want is whatever they can get. And they're just throwing anything at the wall right now. So what particularly is outrageous about some of these demands, Ryan? So it's first and foremost, I certainly understand Russia's perspective. So if we can go kind of through history really quickly, yes, the fall of the Soviet Union uh, in 91 was something that uh, Vladimir Putin and many senior officials say was one of the, the greatest tragedies, not because they liked the Soviet Union, but because it Kind of degraded Russian power uh, and status, and so Putin certainly has rebuilt Russia as a state, and there's a lot more patriotism now than we saw in in the 90s. Um, But the the fact that that NATO poses a a serious threat as is to Russia is. While I understand that, of course, NATO was constructed as a bulwark against the Soviet Union. All it's trying to do is protect the smaller states. I mean, that is kind of the 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 genesis of NATO was to protect these countries that were under Soviet influence for such a long time. It's not to destroy Russia. The US has no intention of destroying Russia. I don't think the US even believes that it could take out Vladimir Putin, nor would it really want to, because it it really wants stability. And so the most outrageous thing for me, Andre, is that that Russia thinks that it can dictate uh, who the United States is allied with and who NATO uh, is composed of, Uh, And that is, I mean, really just not how the world works. Well, that's great power competition in a nutshell, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, I guess so. And so um, we'll see what happens with this. I I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. and, and other NATO partners come to the table and talk about something, but it will certainly not look anything like Russia's demands.
0: So Ryan, uh, moving a bit west in Europe to the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson has been in some trouble lately. There's been some controversy about a Christmas party that was hosted uh, last December in Downing Street. Uh, amidst all these COVID lockdowns that have been occurring in London, there were these Christmas parties hosted by, I think, the prime Minister's staffers. And uh, that's really ignited a big sort of scandal for the prime minister. Uh the Prime Minister has also put in place new COVID restrictions, much to the chagrin of his own Conservative Party. Uh, the Prime Minister actually had to rely on Labour votes in the UK Parliament to sort of push these uh, new COVID restrictions through. And just uh, today, in the past 24 hours, North Shropshire, uh, a, very, a typically very safe rural uh, Conservative seat, was lost in a by-election to the Liberal Democrats. Uh, so and and this is a very 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 safe seat. Typically, the Conservatives, I think, had had held on to this for about two hundred years, and they lost it. So, uh, some real questions being asked of Prime Minister Boris Johnson's leadership. I'm not necessarily sure as to whether there is a potential leadership challenge uh, within the Conservative Party. Remember. Uh, The UK does operate in a parliamentary system and uh, the Conservatives have had a history of throwing out uh, leaders before uh, through, you know, party votes, a.k.a. Margaret Thatcher in 1990 after trying to pull uh, push through the poll tax. They basically threw her out uh, or she resigned before she'd be thrown out. But, uh, yeah, Boris Johnson's in some hot water and this is only two years after he won that massive landslide victory in 2019.
1: I mean, Andre. Some of the uh, the analysis that I've seen has essentially said that this could be the last straw, uh, even for the Conservative Party, because Labor could very well take the lead in national polls. Um, COVID, of course, has had political ramifications as well as economic and human life uh, costs as well. And but really, politically, uh, countries around the world, not just the U.S., not just the UK, have been trying to manage this pandemic not only because, of course, you want to, you know take care of the public health of your population. But when you don't manage crises properly, there are political costs and we're seeing this. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, uh,
0: I think the UK's political developments will be really interesting to observe. I feel like you're sort of seeing a new prime minister every three years, right? It was only, what, five years ago that David Cameron resigned after the Brexit vote in 2016. Then Theresa May came in, couldn't really handle all the Brexit chaos and she lasted until... What 2018, and then Boris Johnson came in, and it's been about three years for him. And uh, I also do think, you know, it's another example of uh, the pandemics are rearing its ugly head in terms of political costs for incumbents, right? Uh, Obviously, President Trump lost the election, I think, primarily due. To the pandemic, right? Because usually we had that incumbency factor, and the economy was doing fine. Uh, President Biden right now is seeing lower approval ratings because of this resurgence in COVID. We saw it with Delta, and now with Omicron. uh And of course, you know, with COVID, the economy is still it's still on shaky ground, right? COVID can destroy the economy in a second. So, I mean, you're seeing political unpopularity for a host of leaders throughout the world because of the pandemic or pandemic-related causes.
1: I mean, absolutely. I, I'm curious to see what will happen, not only because I want to have some sort of return to normalcy in, in my own life, um, and I also don't want to see uh, a needless loss of life in the U.S. and around the world. And so uh, hopefully that these countries can better manage COVID-19 because uh, there are all these costs. And so um, we'll leave that there, Andre. What else is on your plate?
0: Well, I mean, I've just been reading some interesting articles, to be honest. I saw Spider-Man uh, last night. It was really good. Green Goblin fantastic. Willem Defoe is probably the best part of the movie, of which I will say. He's in the trailer, so I can say that. Uh, but, Ryan, you know, I've been thinking a lot. So we, we talk a lot about democracy in the United States, right? Like, you know, the dangers of democracy. Democracy is under attack and so on. I feel like there's a bit of a communication gap between how different segments of the population understand that problem or understand that question. Right. So we see a lot of sort of liberal leaning commentators, political pundits and so on, who typically vote a Democrat, talk about democracy being under attack. Uh The Republicans, of course, talk about this by, you know, asserting or at least the Trumpian ones assert that, okay, like maybe the election's been rigged and so on. But I feel like there's just massive gap in communication, because if people who are primarily Democrats talk about democracy being under attack and you're talking to Republican voters, they're just going to see democracy being under attack as Republicans winning the
1: election. Do I have a point there? I, th- I think you might be onto something, and it's not necessarily that the those on the left are wrong in that there are challenges, not necessarily with Republicans, but certainly a segment of the party. And I guess because it's really still kind of Trump's party in many ways, um, with it. And so, if you can't separate that out and kind of understand and try to reach across to those, whether they're independent voters or Republican voters, that we're not blaming you, we're blaming some individuals who are undermining the party. I mean, it's going to be very difficult for them to attract voters because they're going to see them as attacking them as saying, look at you, look what you're doing to our country. And that's not a, that's not a way to win over votes. It's, I mean, that's the completely wrong strategy is saying, look at you, look what you're doing. How, how are you hurting us? Instead of saying, look what we can provide for you. Look what the, your side is not providing for you. Um, and so it's, it's, I do see this disconnect in rhetoric because,
0: because it's like, you know, like I, I agree with like many of the points that many of these folks make, right. I, I do agree with them, but I just think there's, they're not communicating it properly. And and Ryan, I mean, you're absolutely correct. Right. I mean, it's just so difficult to make people understand that democracy is more than just an election, right? It's more than just the actual votes. Uh, At the Aspen Security Forum, we heard uh, a scholar named Sadanand Doom refer to India as a very flawed democracy. And you might ask, why? Why is India a very flawed democracy? It's the world's largest democracy. You're having elections all the time, elections across one and a half billion people. But he made a point that said democracy is not necessarily just about elections. It's about freedom to do this and that and whatever. And uh, obviously right now we're seeing a lot of focus on localities with election security, election-related officials, and so
1: on with regards to this
0: sort of democracy
1: debate. And it's incredibly important. We have midterm elections coming up in the United States. And so uh, there will be another election before the presidential election where we will be able to see where the tides really are. And everything I've seen has said that it could be very likely that the Republicans do quite well. And what that would mean was, on, on the one hand, is that... President Biden would have a very difficult time getting anything done. Uh, and on the other hand, it would, things would get even more politicized and polarized when you have a split in, between the branches, uh, just because then, you know, interests are so divided that you don't get things done, that people are upset. And, and it's just kind of, you, you're in this endless circle.
0: And, and of course, gerrymandering, you know, exists, right? Gerrymandering exists. It's a big problem. Uh, you know, the push for voting rights and all of that exists as well. But I fear that there is such a big focus on in the Democratic Party, perhaps, with the Twitterati, because I feel like Twitter operates in its own little silo off yonder on Mount Olympus, and they're looking down at all the commoners, you know, way below them from Olympus, and uh, the commoners don't understand it. They don't understand what's why... These questions are so important, and I don't think there's a big effort to communicate that. I, I, I couldn't
1: agree more. I think that the Democratic Party has a messaging problem, and it's been for a, a long time. Uh, and if they want to succeed, not only in the midterms, but m- even more importantly, uh, in the next presidential election, which up, up until now, you know, it looks like we will see former President Trump run again. If, if they want to be successful in these elections, they're going to have to change their communication strategy. Uh, because the Republican Party does a far better job on explaining what the other side is not doing for them, which is energizing voters. I mean, if, I think it's hard to say. I don't think anyone on any side could say that the Democratic bar- Party is better at messaging than the Republican Party. And that needs to be changed.
0: I mean, the two greatest presidents of communication in the last half century were arguably Reagan and Clinton. They were excellent at communication because they, I mean, whether it's Clinton's, you know, I feel your pain or Reagan's great communicator, you know, moniker, I mean, they were just excellent at communicating their messages and like sort of simplifying it down. And also, I mean, President Biden's not necessarily great at communication, nor I don't, to to be frank, sorry, I mean, his team's not great at communication strategies because, uh, we're we're just I see certain tweets sometimes whether it's about inflation or Vice President Harris tweeted out that uh, the biggest problem with electric vehicles, for example, is that you can't find a charging port. I mean, hello, I can't afford an electric vehicle. <laughs>
1: I can hardly afford a regular vehicle. Electric Teslas are so expensive, and all of that. <laughs> this is not. I mean, this really is the disconnect, and and really just politics writ large, and. This is certainly going into far other issues than we usually talk about, but I think we should talk about them because they're important and they kind of dictate who's in charge and who then leads into foreign policy. And so um, I agree. I think that when you have conversations that are at a level that does not, um, cannot be understood or even like there's no commonality with the average person in America who doesn't care about their charging ports, but rather they want to ensure that inflation is lowered so that their groceries are less expensive or that the gas is less expensive because they still have a gas-powered car. And that's not going to change anytime soon, given the you know disparities in, in incentives and pricing and all that stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I agree. It has to change. I, I
0: sort of agree with the theory I saw, that the president's approval ratings might just be predicated on gas prices, right? Because gas prices, poof, in California, incredibly high. And in San Diego, not the best public transit. So in many cases, you don't really have a choice between whether you can take public you can waste 20 or two hours on public transit or 20 minutes in a car so i mean you know i i think we need some new voices ryan in, in policy and politics voices who can actually communicate this stuff better but to be frank sometimes it's a bit tough to get those new voices
1: into dc uh, i can certainly agree with that andre um it, uh, it, DC is a very interesting place. Uh, like many uh, capitals in any country, it is kind of, it's full of uh, politicians and lawyers and lobbyists, and and they are all staffed by people our age who do a lot of the grunt work. And sometimes it's very un, it's you know not paid well or just completely unpaid, which is a whole other issue that I know you and I have talked about frequently, Andre. In the internships that you and I have held. I mean, just comparatively, and we've worked in, you know, I've worked in government, you've worked in think tanks and, and for local government. And so I, I've rarely been paid, which I'm fortunate to be in a position where that's not, uh, you know, it doesn't prevent me from engaging them, but it prevents a lot of individuals from doing that. And we're, we're, we're hurting the growth of our, of our leadership and, and our country when we don't ensure that we have paid Internships or even just a a living wage for those people who are working to keep the government afloat.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean, like real talk. I mean, like, I mean, this is really spurred by this great article I saw in foreign policy uh, by Robbie Gramer and Anna Weber called Washington Runs on Interns. So why are most of them not paid enough and some not paid at all? Uh, And I'll tell you something. I mean, I was very fortunate to have interned at uh, two phenomenal think tanks uh, in the D.C. area virtually. Uh, in my graduate school uh, career. But I was never able to even envision that in undergrad at the University of Michigan. Why? Because most of them were unpaid. If I wanted a Hill internship, the pay would be so little to none uh, that I literally could not afford to go to DC. So I worked in local government. I interned at local government at a mayor's office twice at a regional chamber of commerce. I did research on the side. And, uh, you know, working in local government, I thought was a fantastic experience, a fantastic opportunity, gave me a lot of great skill sets, and I met a lot of great people doing fantastic work. But, uh, you know, I would have loved to have been in D.C., but I just simply couldn't afford it. And I feel like when you're making some of these unpaid internships more accessible to people who have more money, who are sort of on mommy and daddy's sort of, you know, paychecks and all of that. How are you going to make this stuff more accessible? How are you going to make these discussions more accessible to people who are middle class or, you know, lower in from a lower socioeconomic sort of uh, class or scale?
1: Yeah, it, it should, there should be brilliant people at all levels, all backgrounds being able to work in government if they so choose. And so, Andre, I will say there are, you know, some members of Congress. Um, that do pay. Some of them pay quite well, but it's sparingly. And so it, it really depends on the person. Uh, it depends on the office. It depends. I mean, many government agencies, um, executive departments don't pay, but there are some programs such as the Pathways programs that pays. And so there are opportunities out there. I just don't think there are enough. There's no- there, there aren't enough. There, yeah, the opportunities exist. Many universities have
0: grants, but sometimes it isn't necessarily enough to make it through unless you're not you're doing you know another part-time job in addition to your internship Uh, some of these unpaid internships again make you work full-time as well and uh It's also interesting because I feel like some of these unpaid internships are, in a way, investments. Some investments that people can afford to make, some that uh, people can't afford to make sometimes. Because I mean, Ryan, I'm learning this from the job hunt right now. It is incredibly difficult to break into DC if you're not from DC or if you're
1: not in DC. Hey, that's kind of the calculus as to why I chose to go to law and graduate school in DC. Proximity can help. Yeah, I mean, hey, proximity helps, but it should not be. Um, uh, it should not inhibit individuals who want to do that because there are great schools around the country, right? Just because you choose to go to U Chicago does not mean that you shouldn't be able to get a great job in DC. I mean, truly, I think we, the government uh, and the private sector need to do a better job at ensuring that we can get great talents across the board. Well, the private
0: sector does a great job at like getting great talent because they actually pay. <laughs> they do. Yes, that, that is true. Right? right? They actually pay. And, uh, you know, Ryan, I was asked this by someone uh, a few days or weeks ago, uh, you know, because I've been applying to a lot of Hill jobs, a lot of Hill opportunities and so on. And someone asked me, you know, why are you trying to work on the Hill? Uh, You know, you don't have any prior Hill experience. And I was like, well, I couldn't afford it. (laughs) I literally could not afford to get the Hill experience. And unfortunately... You know, you come to D.C., you get that internship, you start making the connections, you start networking, and then you sort of get set up for that next job or something down the line. Uh, What if you can't get to D.C.? How are you going to network? I mean, for me, you know, I've been able to meet a lot of great people
1: because I've started the podcast. It's a bit like crazy, isn't it? It is a bit crazy. And I I am just imagining there are some uh, people listening. Thinking, look at these two whiny millennials. But I do think it's a big problem, uh, and again, it's you know it's impacted both of us in certain ways. But I think there are a, a huge swath of of those job seekers, particularly those who are very well educated, coming from you know great schools across the board around the country, interested in serving their country that don't have the ability to do so because it's, you know, they're, they're priced out.
0: Also, I mean, you know, Ryan, we both went to great schools and we were very privileged and fortunate to have gone to the university of Michigan, U Chicago and GW uh, schools that are very well known for their name brands. It sometimes irks me that the name brand at the school is what sometimes gets you through the door or gets someone to look at your resume or even giving you a chance. Like if you went to a state school, a local college and so on, but you're just, you know, as well as like, you know, very well qualified, it sort of irks me, you know?
1: Again, I com- completely agree. Um, people at all levels of education should be able to have certain opportunities. Of course, there are, you know, requirements and those things are certain jobs and experiences. But um, I do think that the, the government and the nonprofit sector, particularly when it comes to like think tanks, need to do a better job of of getting talent in the door if when they can't, you know, afford to do so when they're not being paid. I mean we shouldn't have unpaid internships in this country. I mean, well, I mean what they'll
0: say is that hey, there are plenty of people who are willing to do it for an unpaid because it's a great experience, it's a great opportunity and all of that. But to that I say, what if you can't afford it? And you know, funding may be more possible at some schools, but for some funding is not so possible. And you're just limited at that yeah, point. I,
1: I completely agree. Um, this is a very different episode, Andre, than we usually have. But I hope that what we're saying yeah. uh, to all of you listening maybe resonates or you find interesting. But you know, if, if you don't, just send us an email, tweet at us, comment on one of our you know, Instagram posts and say, you know, t- ch- change the topic. But I, I do think this was a good conversation. It's not about being whiny. I mean, I'm still unemployed, but like, it's not <laughs> about
0: being like whiny
1: or anything.
0: It's about just Saying that, like, hey, if you're trying to stop being called the elite, maybe you should, you know, make it more accessible to the non elite. Great point. Because these are also education opportunities. People who work in Capitol Hill, who work in DC, they can bring that knowledge back home. They can bring those experiences back home to their parents, their neighbors, and their
1: friends, whether it's from you know, in Los Angeles or in Kentucky. All right. Well, let's, let's leave that there. And unless you have anything else uh, to chat about for, for this week's What in the World, uh, we will preview our fabulous episode coming out on Monday with John Cipher. Uh, John is a former CIA operations officer. He served for 28 years uh, at the agency in a variety of roles, um, a, lo- a large focus on the Soviet Union uh, and Russia. We talk about his career, his decision to join the agency. He actually trained uh, CIA officers. He was a, a lead instructor. Uh, and then we talk about Russia. He, of course, has an interesting perspective on Putin, uh, on the recent escalation around Ukraine, and on what the future of Russia really looks like, what Russian people actually believe. And then, of course, we talk about his very interesting work with Spycraft Entertainment. He essentially takes the experiences and work of those who served uh, in intelligence and national security And translates that into a variety of media uh, mediums. Um, I I very much enjoy the conversation. John's a super cool guy, and I'm sure you'll all like it as well.
0: Definitely. And for now, stay tuned. See you next time.